From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Dr. Victor Davis Hanson of the Hoover Institution about his new book, The Second World Wars, that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Historians have analyzed, reanalyzed, and written about World War II in exhaustive detail since the last days of the war itself, all the while debating its root causes and exact starting date. But in his latest work, The Second World Wars, noted military historian Dr. Victor Davis Hanson challenges some of the prevailing orthodoxy about how the first global conflict was fought and won. And in doing so, Hansen offers this work in a unique thematic manner in lieu of the more conventional chronological form that such material is usually presented. Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. No, it's good. You know, um, uh, so, uh, last year, I believe it was, I had Todd Brewster on, who was the author of Lincoln's Gamble. And I asked him, I said, you know, there's been 23,000 books written about Abraham Lincoln. Why would you enter that sweepstakes? And I feel compelled, sir, to begin by asking you a similar question. I'm sure there's been more books written about World War II than Lincoln, so why would you feel compelled to get back into those sweepstakes? Exactly 7,000 every year, so that's a good question. <laughs> uh, well, as a broader military historian that concentrates in Greece and the ancient world, I thought I could have a different approach. So three things. Um, one, I organized the book differently, so it's not year-by-year narrative. It's based on how it was fought, where it was fought, and what were the decisions made that were that changed the course of the war. And by that I mean... I have sections on air, water, sea, land, the economy, leaders, and then I assess whether Roosevelt was better than Hitler or Stalin was superior to Tojo and did it matter, or the fact that the Japanese didn't build a four-engine bomber or the Germans didn't either, did that matter, or money misspent on battleships rather than carriers. So that's a little bit different. And then the second, I use the word wars, plural, to suggest there was really two wars. There was a series of border wars from 1939 to 41, in which Germany won, won the war. It defeated Denmark, Norway, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Yugoslavia, Greece, and sort of corralled Britain. And then for some reason, and I discuss that in the book, in 1941 it started an entirely different global war against the United States and the Soviet Union, along with Japan against the United States, and by that I mean invading the Soviet Union in June of 1941, Pearl Harbor attacked by the Japanese in December 7th of 1941, and then the declaration of war on the United States and Britain by Japan and the United States by uh, Italy and Germany, and that changed everything. Suddenly the war was global, it was existential, uh, it ranged from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara, from skies, uh, you know, from off the Miami coast all the way to the Boulder River, and then 
Manchuria to Wake Island and from Alaska to the Indian Ocean. And that was a war that the uh, Axis powers, Japan, Italy, and Germany, had to win very quickly because they did not, they only had about 40% of the population of the Soviet Union and the United States and Britain. The British Empire it had about one third of the industrial base and uh, it didn't have a blue water navy or heavy long-range bombers as did the British and the Americans and it didn't have an army the size of the Soviets so if they didn't win by 1942 mid-40 it was going to lose the war and for a while it looked close I mean at, they were outside Stalingrad on the Volga River the German 6th Army the Japanese were about to cut Guadalcanal off and with it Australia and Rommel was in Egypt and then suddenly in the fall, it turned out at El Alamein and Stalingrad and the American invasion of Guadalcanal that all that went up in smoke. And then it was just a question of greater manpower, leadership, economic advantages, sort of bearing the axis. It took three additional years because we insisted on unconditional surrender, and that was very different than just an armistice. So uh, all these things, I think, haven't been discussed in prior wars. Um, um, spend a moment, if you will, because I know you you spent some time with this point in the book. But explain how World War II, in um, in, in myriad ways, w- was unique from any other war in, in previous history. Well, it was larger than any, not just any other war, but any other natural disaster. Sixty to sixty-five million people died, uh, and they did so in six years. The Black Plague of the 14th century had not been as destructive. And then, unlike most wars, uh, the vast majority of that 60 to 65 were civilians, probably 80% of them, somewhere between 45 and 50 million people. And then, of that 40 or 50 million, 80% of them were Eastern Europeans, Russians, and Chinese. What does that mean? It means that if you look at the war in terms of who killed and who died, It was largely a story of Germans and Japanese soldiers killing innocent civilians, mostly Russian and Chinese and Eastern European. 27,000 people were killed every day of the Six Years' War. We don't really look at it that way. We don't look at Germany and Japan. We think they were great militaries, and they were, but their, their damage was mostly killing unarmed civilians. And as I recall, as you mentioned in the book, the, this is one of the few wars where where, where the, the losers actually had more was more destructive in terms of fatalities than, than the yeah. allies. Yeah, usually we, in most wars, um, almost all wars, the, uh, the losers lose more unless they're much smaller countries. But usually, obviously, they lose more soldiers, and therefore they lose the war. But in this case... The winners uh, lost a lot more, and that's largely because not the United States and Britain, which together only lost about 850,000 compared to the um, 3 million in uh, Japan and the 5 million in Germany and the 1 million in Italy, but because of the, as I said, the massacre of 16 million Chinese and 27 million Russians and probably uh, 12 Eastern Europeans, 12 million. And then if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was also, in the whole nexus coming together of this war, you also had some 
varying ideological tension also at play. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, I mean, it was ironic that the Axis should have been working together because they all had similar forms of government and ideology, fascism in Italy and Japanese militarism and national socialism in Germany. But, in fact, they didn't work together. They were suspicious of each other. They didn't share technology. They didn't share strategies. Whereas the Allies, they had nothing in common, British imperialism, American democracy, Soviet communism, but they had a common um, sense of righteous anger that they all had either been surprise attacked in the case of Russia and the United States, or their ally, Poland, in the case of Britain, had been surprise attacked. And so they actually worked quite well. They shared weapons, they shared uh, material aid, they coordinated their strategies, they didn't make separate pieces. Whereas the Axis, I mean, Hitler had no idea where Pearl Harbor was when he learned on December 8th that it had been bombed. Italy had no idea it was that Germany had invaded the Soviet Union and Germany had no idea in 1940 that Italy had attacked Dalmatia and gone into Greece. So they were always conniving and double-crossing each other. You know, um, the, other, the other piece of that um, was that the, the way, uh, in particular, the Soviet Union and, and America with the surprise attacks, as you just mentioned, that also allowed the Allies t- to sort of take the moral high ground with neighboring countries and how they sided in the war, too. Is that correct? I think it is. I mean, Stalin, before the war, had killed 20 million, so he was a he was a suspect ally. Obviously, he was an evil man. But when the actual war started, the allies made the argument that they, had, as I said, had either been surprise attacked or, their al- or they had been, um, an ally had been surprise attacked, and that they didn't, at least the case of the British and the Americans, they did not want territory like the Axis did. Soviets said that, but of course they they absorbed back the Baltic states and parts of Finland and Eastern Europe. But nevertheless, it turned out of the two billion people that were involved, I mean, a billion of the two billion people in the world were involved in the war. Most people would rather be liberated by the Allied powers than occupied by the Axis powers. And again, most of the world uh, in 1942 was occupied by the Axis. All of Europe, much of Asia, parts of North Africa, and the Pacific, and most of them did not want to be uh, occupied, but they sorely wanted to be liberated by the Allies. So it really helped their propaganda that they had not started the war, they did not want to fight it, they had even been isolationist, or in the case of Russia, colluding with the Germans, or the case of Britain, appeasing them, and yet war came to them anyway. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen of the Hoover Institution and author of The Second World Wars. You know, one of the um, items, Dr. Hansen, that um, uh, I guess been widely accepted was that the, Dracon- the draconian nature of the Treaty of Versailles uh, was a contributing factor that, along with the Depression, in creating Adolf Hitler, so to speak. You see that, uh, that draconian nature of the Treaty of Versailles, you see that somewhat differently in your book. I do. Um, the problem with Versailles was that it was punitive in word, and that is it blamed Germany for World War I, and it, it sliced off part of Germany indeed, but... 
it didn't occupy Germany. It didn't divide it as it did in World War II, and it didn't keep the Allied uh, armies mobilized. And in comparison with other treaties, that's what we have to go by. For example, the treaty that Germany inflicted on, imposed, I should say, in France after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, or what it had in mind in 1914 in the September program, its tentative treaty it was going to force on France, or what it imposed on Russia in 1918, the Treaty of brest or what the Allies did after the war, World War II in 1945, Versailles was very mild uh, in comparison. The Germans, you know, they were. They said they 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 were in a foreign country. They walked back 70 miles outside of France and Belgium, and then they got into Germany. And they said nobody's ever set foot in Germany. It's true. Uh, General Falk and, and uh, General Pershing wanted to go into Germany and occupy it, and remind the German people they'd lost. But that didn't happen. So after the war, the, this myth grew that the Germans had been stabbed in the back by communists or socialists or Jews while they were on the offensive, even though they were just about ready to collapse. So Versailles really did cause World War II, but not in the way most people think. It made the losers want to fight it and try it again, and it made the winners sort of, let's not ever do this again. We lost too much, and war is bad, and we should have avoided it, whereas the losers especially the Germans, that, you know, war is good. We almost pulled it off. We'll do it right next time. And now, to this end, do uh, you believe uh, some strategic failures on, on what became the Allies, um, that World War II um, could have been avoided? Is that, is that correct? Like, yeah, I think, well, when, take one example. Germany had made it clear uh, I should say Hitler had made it clear with his general staff that he was not going to have a two-front war, at least not initially. So there's no chance in the world he would have invaded Poland had the Soviet Union been neutral or had been on the side of the Allies. It was only the non-aggression pact a week before on August 23rd that allowed him to go into Poland. So Russia had not colluded. And then over the next year, it supplied Hitler with generous amounts of wheat and oil, precious metals and therefore fueled this effort against Britain. Had it not done that, I don't think there would have been a war. If Britain and France had not appeased Hitler in the mid-30s, their combined economies and their manpower was greater than Germany. In fact, even when Hitler invaded France, they had just started to rearm, and they already had planes and tanks that were as good or better than those of the Wehrmacht. So, and finally, had the United States done in 1918, what it had done in 1945, that is, stayed engaged and maybe have a NATO-like alliance to protect uh, Western Europe, I don't think Germany would have invaded. You know, you know, one of the things when I was reading your book, I found myself saying, um, sort of putting myself um, in that leadership position, I found myself, you would make a point about Hitler, and he's about, in this case, say, you know, invade Russia or or to, or to turn west. And I could see I could see someone saying, "Well, Hitler wouldn't do that, would he?" And 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 each time I said that, that was obviously the very the very thing that Hitler did. And I'm wondering, 
was there a way to do we over did we oversimplify Hitler? Do we uh, how how was that possible? That we, every time we made an assumption that he wouldn't do something, that's exactly what he did. I think Anthony Eden sort of summed it up when he said that nobody really had seen people like Hitler and Mussolini before. They had both been from the lower rungs of society. They had fought in World War One. They had flirted with both communism and Nazism and fascism. And uh, I don't think allied statesmen really understood how they thought. And by that I mean each time they were shown understanding, they interpret that magnanimity as weakness, and each time, uh, and that weakness was to be reciprocated with force, and each time we were tough, they backed down. But the Allies believed that Hitler was rational, so even though he was very weak in the 30s, if they gave concessions on the Rhineland or the Saarland or the Anschluss or Czechoslovakia, they felt that he would be appreciative. Same with the Japanese in terms of China. <clears throat> and Southeast Asia, but they didn't understand the mind of a fascist, which always looks at democracies as weak in general, and then the statesmen who try to be sober judicious as, as uh, materially weak. And it's a good message, I think, about deterrence, that if you're going to stop a war or prevent a war, you have to not only have material military readiness, but you psychologically or spiritually have to convey to an aggressor that you're willpower is such that it would be very stupid to attack you. You'd have far more to lose than you would have to gain. But although the Allies had rough comparability of material readiness in 1939, they did not have the spiritual willingness that Hitler did. And by 41, they did, and they also had the um, material readiness, but they had not made that clear. The United States had not made that clear to the Japanese, and the Russians had not made that clear to Hitler. So they lost deterrence. And when you lose deterrence, you usually have a, a war that tells you who's strong and who's weak. At the end of the war, everybody knew the obvious, that anybody would be insane to attack an alliance of Britain, Soviet Union, and the United States. But it took a war in 60, 60 million dead to prove what should have been obvious. Um, I want to go back in context for a minute and go back to 1939. And, you know, the, the word appeasement in the 21st century is, is, is a bad word, negative connotation, obviously um, usually associated with Neville Chamberlain and, and, and acts of that nature, and, uh, along with uh, being isolationist the same way. But, but, but back in 1939, those weren't necessarily negative terms, were they? No, they were uh, positive. You know, appeasement's derivative from both French and ultimately Latin, pox, peaceful, it meant that if you showed or you demonstrated a willingness for peace and you wanted peace above war, you were reasonable and that would be reciprocated. It was part of the the dream and the hopes of the League of Nations, that you could adjudicate differences by good intentions and showing good intentions. Where And isolationism was considered a moral credo that you had gone in, if you were an American, you'd lost 117,000 gone into European affairs in a way that our founders had warned us not to, and yet here it was in the mid-30s, and they were doing it again. So isolationism meant you were peace-loving, and you wanted to let everybody be, live and let live. And so yeah, right, both terms were positive. The only problem was that 
they were based on a misreading of, of both the Versailles Treaty and World War One, the end of it. By that I mean, had we not been isolationists and had we had an occupation force, we would have deterred Germany and we probably would have prevented World War Two in a way that we did after World War Two was over. Now, earlier I asked you um, about some of the ideological differences and, and you specifically talked about you know, the Axis. Uh, but was there some paradox running through the Allied narrative as well? Just different forms? Yes, there was a lot. Um, <laughs> the most obvious was that we had cut off aid to the Soviet Union um, when they had invaded Finland. And we actually inadvertently found ourselves on the side of the Germans. That would be in uh, November of 1939 to March of 1940 because they had and the act of aggression had invaded Finland. We were mad at the Soviet Union because for a year they had been supplying materials that helped Germany bomb London. And we were mad at the Soviet Union because the Great Terror and the famines and the show trials and the purges of military officers had probably killed 20 million. So when Russia was invaded on June 22, 1941, there were a lot of people, remember this was six months before Pearl Harbor, that said, this isn't that bad. Hitler's evil and Stalin's evil, and we'll just let them fight it out. Then Japan attacked us, and we were in need of allies, so we thought, wow, and Germany declared war on us. We said, wow, the Red Army is consuming two out of three German soldiers, so we better help it. Then there was another argument, well, we can just let them fight and hope the Russians win, and then the answer was, well, they won't win unless we give them 20% of the material needs, so we did that as well. And then between Britain and the United States, there was this, there was tensions because the British Empire was fading, and even though they had the largest navy when the war broke out, there was a sense that they didn't have the financial wherewithal to fight the war, and we were saying to them, this war is for democracy and freedom, and you can't have an empire afterwards. You can't occupy India or Africa and say that you're against German occupation. And so Britain resented that, and they said there's nothing common between what Germany did in Poland and what we're trying to do in a civilizing sense in India. So there was all this back and forth, but it, pretty much they were able to, their hate, shared hatred of Hitler, Mussolini, and Tojo was enough to transcend that. You know, another thing that you pointed out uh, is that sort of, this is more of an irony, was that Stalin was more loyal to the deals that he made with the Axis than he was with the deals he made with the Allies. Yeah, I think that we let Russia off too easily because they lost 27 million. That's horrible, but it was all of their own doing. Um, there were six major belligerents, if we don't count China, and at one time Russia made a deal with all of them. They had the Ribbentrop, Molotov, non-aggression pact with Germany, and that had betrayed Japan because Japan was at a, in a war in Manchuria with the Soviet Union. And then suddenly, Japanese got angry. So in April of 1941, they cut a deal with the Soviet Union right before Germany invaded, kind of sold out Germany, paid them back. And then Germany broke that deal. But the Soviets didn't. They were happy with it. And Italy joined along, and they had an arrangement with Italy that they were pro-Italian. And then when they were invaded, they needed allies, so they cut a deal with Britain and the United States, and they kept it pretty well until 45. But 
part of that deal was to allow plebiscites of natural, uh, national determination in occupied Eastern Europe. And, of course, they broke those de- all of those deals and enforced communist dictatorships in a way that they had never done with the Germans or Italians. They had always been more than fair with the Germans, but less than fair with the people. More than fair with the people who almost destroyed them and less than fair with the people who saved them. And then the height of the irony came with their non-aggression pact with Japan, because while we were sending freighters, uh, liberty ships and victory ships from Portland or Seattle full of goods to save Stalin, they were, as soon as they left America, they were reflagged with Soviet flags, and they went right through war-infested waters where Americans were dying by the thousands, and the Japanese didn't even fire on them. So American submarine commanders would take out three or four freighters and then be hunted down by Japanese destroyers and pick up their, look up their periscope, and here would be a big, fat target with a Soviet flag full of American boots and radios headed to the Soviet Union, and neither they nor the Japanese would touch it. So they were very you know, strange allies in that fashion. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen of the Hoover Institution and author of The Second World Wars. Uh, Dr. Hansen, I know I'm asking you now to speculate, but what happens uh, if Germany and Italy do not declare war on the United States on December 11, 1941? In other words, America's still isolationist. So are we just having a war in the Pacific, do you think, or does Roosevelt find a way to get to Europe regardless? Mm, I don't think he would have been able to. He was relieved when Italy and Germany on the 11th, quite out of the blue, declared war on us because he had an, the American people were not going to— they had difficulty enough saying that Germany first, Japan second, once they did declare war. But the American people were not going to go to war— against a country that has not attacked us when they were already in a war with a country that did. So I think public opinion would have forced Roosevelt to concentrate only on Japan, defeat Japan, and then and only then turn to Europe. And Roosevelt probably correct felt that if he had done that, it would have been too late or the casualties would have been so high it, would, it wouldn't have mattered. But he there was a, a clear impression that the United States would not have gone to war against Germany and Japan had they not, uh, Germany and Italy, excuse me, had they not declared war. You know, one of the things I, I, we haven't talked about, but I think it, it, it bears some mentioning, given, you know, the arguments you've put forth and some of the things that the Allies have uh, could have done uh, or, or could have done differently at least, how did those actions, based on your research, sir, impact what we now know as the final solution? Well, it's a good question, but if you look at letters and transcripts of State Department communications, it's pretty clear that at least by late 1943, there was an ability by U.S. Uh, liberator bombers, say, in northern Italy, or Midi, I should say Midi, Italy, or even some in Britain, that they were able to bomb the um, gas chambers at Auschwitz and most of those uh, less distant. And had the Soviet Union allowed us to do one-way trips and refuel, it would have been more than easy. But even if they didn't, we, we did 
bomb factories in Bergenthal, not far from Auschwitz. So the question is, why didn't we do it? And we have a lot of communications uh, from the air commanders that they thought that once they diverted uh, bombing operations from strategic targets to humanitarian, it wouldn't end, and then we would just be bombing anybody we thought were hurting people, and therefore the war would go on and more people would get hurt because we weren't bombing transportation or oil. That was a a somewhat debatable proposition, but what was not debatable was the State Department's insistence that the demand to bomb the, the death camps was coming from inordinate Jewish interests. In other words, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the American State Department. They said, well, you know, the Jews got us in this because of Germany, and that now they're demanding that we use our resources to save them, and we're not going to do that. So it was regrettable, but I do think most historians agree that by 1943, when about, oh, 65% of the eventual toll of the death camps had happened, but 35% hadn't, you're talking about perhaps over 2 million Jews could have been saved in late 43 and 44. And, and while it may not be called the, um, may not have been called the final solution, um, even I'm 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 speculating myself now, but I'm posing the question to you. Even if if had the Allies done what you proposed, given the uh, publishing of Mime Cough in the twenties and the fact that Dachau was up and operational, at least with uh, communists and gypsies within months of Hitler c- coming to power, something horrific would have occurred at least within the German borders of, to to German Jews. That, would that be correct? Yes, I think, but remember that Dachau was a concentration camp. They had an oven there, but they they starved people to death, but it wasn't a factory of death like Treblinka or Auschwitz. And of the three, there was only, see, most of the Jews of Europe's 12 million Jews, there was only about 300,000 in in Germany and perhaps only about a million in Western Europe. So if you were an anti-Semite and you were imbued with the spirit of Mein Kampf, and you wanted to wage a war in part to eliminate Jewry in the world, there was about six to seven million Jews in the United States, which you couldn't get your hands on, thank God. But there was about 12 million, and those were mostly in Poland and Ukraine and the Baltic states and Russia itself. So one of the reasons, at least post facto, that Hitler said he had gone into those countries was to, to get his hands on Jews. So had he not gone into Russia, uh, he would have killed Jews in France and Holland if he had been successful in the West as he was. But he wouldn't have had he wouldn't have had access to them. Poland had three million Jews, and he killed almost all of them. In Ukraine and Russia, he killed the other three, uh, other two million, and then a million came from places in Romania and, and France and Greece and places like that. But kill Jews, you had to get into Poland and Ukraine and the Baltic states, and that's why one of the reasons he went in, perhaps. Um, I was wondering, um, given the byproduct of World War II, one of the byproducts was that it did, in, um, in to some degree, spread totalitarianism. I think, that, I think that's a fair statement. In that sense... Can we conclude the Second World War or wars, as, as you as you as you put it, 
doesn't really end to the fall of the Berlin Wall? Well, yeah, it's it's always a question of periodization. There's people who say World War One is not World War One or World War Two. It's the World War, and it started in 1914 and it ended in 1945, the German War. But if you were to see the irony of World War Two, was that Americans thought they had gone to war to liberate Eastern Europe in part from totalitarianism of the German brand, and then it finished World War II completing that mission, but in the process enabling something as worse or even far worse by ensuring it would be totalitarian in the Soviet brand. And that was an irony of it. And in the same notion, they had gone to war with Japan in part to save China. And yet after the war, China was, uh, more people would be killed by communists and by Japanese. And if you add Mao's later purges and starvations, uh, more people were killed by Mao than all of World War II, probably over a 20-year period. So that was the irony, but uh, in fairness to them, them being the generation that won World War II, they had a very pragmatic, they didn't think they had to be perfect to be good. It was 51% worth it, and the, the primary end, end of World War II was to the aim was to get rid of fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany and uh, militarism in Japan and then liberate those countries and then reform them and make them into democracies so they'd be forces for good rather than evil and then make a United Nations and remake the world in the image of parliamentary or American democracy. They succeeded in all those goals, but what they naively, I think, did not calibrate was that the Soviet Union was always as evil as Germany, and by empowering it, we gave it enormous leverage in the post-year, post-war. So with the addition of China into the communist orbit and Eastern Europe and parts of Asia, um, we really didn't finish the task until 1989 of freeing people up, and luckily it was peaceful rather than through a hot war like World War II. You know, Dr. Hans, I'm wondering, did you, in your research, uncover uh, any material where, I guess specifically Britain, since the United States at the time was isolationist, more, more isolationist, um, where there were concerns about Hitler uh, supporting Franco in 1936 in the Spanish Civil War? Yeah, a lot, and Hitler was famous after his nine hours of bannering with Franco. He said he'd rather have a, the worst day of his dentist wasn't as bad as talking to Franco. But Franco had just lost a million Spaniards in the Civil War, and his uh, country was impoverished. It was wrecked. But at the same time, he also looked at the Mediterranean. He said to himself, my gosh, the two fleets that have always boxed us in, the British fleet is is preoccupied, it's under the blitz, and the French fleet doesn't exist anymore. France has surrendered. And all of North Africa that used to be the French Empire is now fascist Vichy France. So he and Hitler fought over that issue, and Franco's argument was, I will open up Spain um, and join you, and then you can attack Gibraltar. Uh, from the land side, the only way to take it. 
and you'll have control of the gates of the Mediterranean. And in exchange for that, I want Spanish, much of Morocco. And Hitler said, I'm sorry, you know, um, I've already promised that to Bataan and the Vichy government. And if I don't give them that, then I'm going to have to spend another million people garrisoning France, whereas they're doing it for me for the most part. So they fought over that, and then Hitler began to see that the Spanish army was uh, not much given the Spanish Civil War, and he couldn't afford to do that. And so what Franco did then was he just played low, stayed low, and he watched the pulse of the war. So as Germany, up until, oh, probably around August 1942, he was sending tungsten and bauxite and things to Germany on credit with free transportation. And, the, and then, of course, when, after Stalingrad and after the D-Day, then he began to charge um, hard currency in advance, and then finally he made the Germans pay for transportation, and then finally he cut them off altogether, and then finally, right before the war ended, he claimed that he was a, a right-wing but had opposed Hitler in, in spirit, but surely was valuable to the Allies against uh, the Soviet Union in the Cold War, and he survived that way. Um, as an author, I know when you when you when you research this kind of work, was there? I mean, is there anything that either surprised you or challenged any suppositions you had going in? Well, I had a a, a greater appreciation for Britain. I had always assumed from most histories that Britain was the weak link in the in the tripartite allied alliance but morally ethically and materially it wasn't i mean it, even though it only had 45 million people it outproduced uh germany uh, at least i should say the british empire with the addition of australia and canada in most munitions it produced more airplanes more trucks uh more small arms itself it was the only country to fight the first day of the war all the way to the end on September 2nd, 1945. It was the only country to fight Hitler alone, as it did for a year between May 40 and June 41. It was the only country that, that actually declared war without having to be attacked, surprise attacked, or attacking anybody else. It did so for the principal Poland. So I got new, a renewed appreciation for British competence, British industrial uh, know-how and technology. I mean, they were so far ahead of people in, in terms of cryptology and submarine warfare, sonar, radar. We were very lucky to have them on our side. And then the other thing is uh, because of Hiroshima and the incendiary raids, we had this impression that Japan was a victim in World War uh, Two, and for some reason they were, but of all the allies, if you look at the number of people killed versus the number that they killed in turn, the Japanese were about the most lethal of all the belligerents. They lost about 3 million people, but they killed about 25 million, mostly in China, but also in places like Burma and the Pacific, Indonesia especially, starving people. So they were a pretty vicious war machine. And... Uh, so those are some of the things. The other thing is it's amazing how well the disparate allies cooperated. If the P-51, 
the new hope for bomber escort didn't perform as usual, as expected with an Allison engine, and the Americans were given a Merlin Rolls Royce engine from Britain, and then it became the best fighter of the war. If a Sherman was found that it would could be blown apart at two miles by a Tiger tank, then the British said, "Hey, we'll put a 17-pounder gun and new turret on your Sherman, much cheaper than building a new tank, and we can handle a, a Tiger." So things like that were surprising how fluid and willing the Allies were to share secrets and technology in a way that the Germans never, you know, said to the Italians, we'll equip you with Panther tanks or I should say Mark IV tanks. Or they told the Japanese, here's some early rocket designs. They just, they just didn't integrate their strategy or capability. Finally, um, yeah. if you had to... Uh, based on based on this wonderful work, if you had to put an epitaph um, at the headstone of the Allies, what would it be? If you had to do one for Axis, what would that be? So you can start with Axis if you want. Well, I think that the moral of the story for the Axis is that military prowess or success in war is not found in a lot of spirit or even the capa fighting capability of an individual soldier is much greater than that. It's based on industry and propaganda and ideology and the cause. And they, they all three Axis powers thought that they were creating super people who could fight on the battlefield better. As far as the Allies goes, I think their credo was you don't have to be perfect to be good and you don't have to be uh, invincible to win. In other words, they they tended to be very pragmatic. If, if they made a tank like the Sherman, it was 10 hours of uh, road duty to one hour of maintenance, not like a Tiger one-to-one. -one. Or if they made an M1, it was very durable and easily repaired. If they, they built a battleship, it was to uh, shore up an amphibious assault with artillery support. It wasn't something white elephant like the Kirkwoods or Mushashi, that was uh, emblematic of national size and power, but of no practical value. So even the Soviets were the same. So they made durable, practical weapons. They, their strategies were pretty simple, and the idea was we're going to win the war any way we can, and we're not going to seek perfection, and we're not going to try to impress people with exotic weapons. Every weapon system, every strategy they used was based on empirical observation. It wasn't they didn't live in a world of fantasy like Hitler, you know, that I'm going to go to the Soviet Union in three weeks or the China, Japan or going to take over a country like China or Italy thinking they could control all the Mediterranean. They're very practical people. Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, author of The Second World Wars, thank you for once again, sir, being on The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Last week, 
we lost another great music legend with the passing of Antoine Dominique Fats Domino. As one of the rock and roll pioneers, Domino sold more than 65 million records. We listen now as he performs the song that he's perhaps best known, Blueberry Hill. Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is located on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh.